0: Hi, I'm Corey Chonsky and welcome to my podcast One House at a Time. As a former naval officer, I'm proud and feel lucky that I was mentored to think about my post-military career and invest in real estate. That decision has helped me to create a level of security and wealth I didn't realize was possible. My mission is to help both those in and out of the military do the same. Each week I will coach those in need around how to build wealth as well as to interview some of the most successful folks and how they built their own financial freedom. Welcome to One House at a Time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of One House at a Time. tonight or Today I have an amazing guest, Joshua Cadillac. Uh, Joshua is a real estate coach, national speaker, and author who trains real estate professionals how to close for life by building lasting success through extensive knowledge. All right, welcome to the show, Josh.
1: Thanks for having me on, Corey. Great hanging out with you, buddy.
0: Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is our second podcast that we're doing this week, so we spent a lot of time together so far that's <laughs> yeah, true so uh, Josh tell us a little bit about yourself and your background
1: um my background I suppose has been in real estate most of my life my father had a was a real estate investor actually he ran a large industrial operation in New York City uh, which which forced him to it was a very uh, land-dependent business and so we needed a lot of sto- uh, exterior storage a lot of uh, plants and stuff like this and so he had um, a lot of real estate holdings throughout New York, and that business sort of wound to an end in the late 70s, early 80s. And so he started to divest himself of this real estate or keep it and rent it out. And so I grew up in this period of time of him either um, selling pieces of property that he had up there or renting out his existing uh, properties. And so I grew up with a guy that was basically a landlord uh, slash real estate investor. And so just sort of Through natural matriculation, if you will, uh, it was it was absorbed what he was doing. And um, fast forward, my father passed away in 2002. Um, We were able to get rid of the last of the properties that we were holding in New York City, which was always the goal to get the heck out of there, and bought uh, some really good commercial properties down here. Uh, Fast forward a little bit further, got into the restaurant business, opened a couple of restaurants because they've been in the school cafeteria business for years, doing really well with that got into the uh, restaurant business and um, yeah that was right around the uh, housing crisis hitting when the housing crisis hit I'm in Southeast Florida worst place in the world would be was to be in anything involving discretionary spending gyms retail oh yeah restaurant my restaurants went from doing great to getting crushed um, my my commercial properties my vacancy rates skyrocketed and I went up in a place where I went up losing just about everything and had to start from scratch and so it was you know, what do you do now and um, what I knew was real estate and so I said all right you know like I know how to buy it I know how to analyze it I know you know I know the value of the product let me uh, let me go into this business and so I got into real estate and one of the brokerage that was was really good the, the broker <laughs> and my partner together a lot he was you know, really jived with the way that I did business, he was, uh, his and my weaknesses and strengths lined up really well and so uh, I learned from him uh, quite a bit and we uh, we grew this into something where I was not only, you know, able to, to survive but more than that I was able to uh, to start to build back everything that I had lost. Uh, got back investing again, started a real estate investment fund, started getting investors the stuff that they needed. But in the process of that, Corey, and this is kind of where the business that I'm in, largely now or one of the businesses that I'm in right now was the fact that I felt woefully unprepared to do the business of real estate after having been given my real estate license like they gave me the license they smacked me in the butt and said you go sell real estate and I'm looking back and I'm like bleh, 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 but I don't know how like this test told me how not to go to jail this test didn't tell me how to actually and so I had this I had this fear that I was going to screw up for a customer and we're going to lose some good person their life savings by making a mistake and so I I actually embraced that fear I actually like that fear and I try to keep that fear in front of mind because early on in my business it made me go chase every piece of real estate education that I could get every class every designation certification whatever you get my email signature has got like alphabet soup for days on there of designations and certifications I've got. And what blew me away was how much it didn't tell you, how much you didn't learn. Like, Corey, if you want to embarrass a real estate agent, most real estate agents ask them this What's good about real estate? And "And then pull a porky pig. Like, I am routinely in the rooms with hundreds, if not thousands, of agents in the last year and I will say, guys, inflation, good or bad for real estate, crickets. You hear nothing, I'm saying, wait a second, guys. To be clear, the single biggest economic force affecting the economy today in that directly affects the product you sell, and you guys are a room full of real estate market experts have no idea how it affects the product you're asking people to buy? Is that is that acceptable? And here's the crazy thing, Corey. I get buy-in from the whole room that it's not acceptable. But here's the reason why I'm in the teaching business now. No class that I ever did or took ever asked me that question or held me accountable that I should know how what's going on affects the thing I sell. And to me, it's just unacceptable. It's not part of mainstream real estate. And that's what got me into the education business that I've been, uh, that's been one of my main businesses the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, you you touched on so many different uh, topics that, you know, we can only start with the first one, but first one is you would think from a room full of real estate agents through this inflationary environment that we're in, they would be able to answer that question just based on they see what's going on. Like probably half the room's not eating right now because there's no transactions.
1: But see, this is the thing, right? When I ask... The answer I it, it, the, the the handful of the, the the little squeaking mouse in the corner says typically bad. I say, all right, guys, let me ask you a question. So you, you get like five answers out of a room of a, a, a 158. It's five answers, and it's bad or or my favorite to hear from somebody that's supposed to be an expert. It depends. Talk about kicking the can down the road. I say, all right, let me ask you a question, guys. Remind me, what product do you sell? We sell real estate. Uh, Okay, let me ask you a question: The people that that bought real estate in 2020, how are they feeling right now? How much appreciation have they experienced? How much rent growth have they experienced? How about the folks that didn't buy real estate in 2020? How are they feeling? Are they watching that property they could have bought? Has that property run away from them? They can no longer afford that property. It's it's priced higher, and what they have to borrow, what they have to pay to borrow to buy it they can't afford the payment anymore. here's the thing right consistently throughout history if you want to look when real estate performs at its best it's always when there's a lot of inflation it appreciates well, you have, to
0: have it first
1: <laughs> well yeah well, but see, the, here's the thing my the product I sell is real estate my product looks better now than it did prior to the real, the, the inflation yeah. I, I was booking three to three and a half percent a year appreciation that's if you're a disciplined real estate investor that's what you've been booking for the last 40 years since the mid-80's. Do you know what the average rate of real estate growth was in the last inflationary cycle in the 1970's? Average real estate appreciation nationwide, so we're we're talking about a really big basket here, the average was 9% per year. How much? Nine. So here's the crazy thing. If you average a 9% growth rate, Corey, for eight years, you've doubled your initial investment. That's the power of compounding. And this is just the appreciation. Forget the rent growth. The rent growth in that same period of time was 125%. So um, the the property appreciation from 1970 to 1980. So that's not even the full inflationary cycle. The inflationary cycle is really like 73 to 82. The total real estate appreciation, well, let's start here. The total devaluation of money, the total aggregate compounded um, Devaluation from the inflation in that period of time was 103.45%, which meant if you had a buck in 1970, you couldn't even buy 50 cents worth of stuff with it by 1980. Okay? So remember that number. It's a great number to write down 103.45. It sounds like a great radio channel. 103.45, right? The total aggregate real estate appreciation for the same period of time was 177.6%. In other words, my real estate out appreciated the devaluation of money by over 70% now here's the interesting thing real estate appreciation for a normal decade is between 50 and 60% when there was this inflation my real estate prices exploded because here's the thing what am I using to buy the real estate with it's the money well here's the thing the money is going down in value while the real estate is still doing it, always does. It's still got that 3, 3.5% a year thing kind of blocked in that it's going to chug away at. But now, in addition to it going up, the value of the money is going down. So, the real estate hasn't changed, the money has changed. I need to give you more of that money for the exact same thing. And so, with things like CPI coming out yesterday at 3.7, which means it's actually trended back up again the idea that this inflationary cycle is over and that real estate has run its course and now it's going to go away and die well guys I'm sorry it's, it's too soon to take it out behind the barn and shoot it because we got we got problems the issue is this the pressures that are going to keep this real estate market alive and I'm sorry Corey to, to rattle on like this but good. I'm, I'm trying to give you foundational stuff to, to, to nail me with later and uh, tell me I'm right or wrong but understand this there's a very interesting correlation Right, interest rates going up is the one thing we're going to say that's going to take and put up downward pressure on real estate pricing. It has; it's slowed the market. But here's the thing: no matter where I go, Corey, no matter where I've been in the U.S., I ask agents, "Are there enough homes right now to match the number of ready, willing, and able buyers that we have?" I have not been any place yet where they say, "No, no, we have more homes than we have buyers." Every place is like, we're desperate for more homes. The reason why there aren't more transactions is not that we don't have buyers. It's the buyers we have don't wanna buy the handful of houses that are out there. The houses that we have stink. So here's the interesting thing, right? As interest rates apply this downward pressure, there's a counteracting pressure that's an amazing phenomenon in real estate, which is that whenever interest rates go up, guess what happens to rents? They go up too. So what has always been the biggest incentive to get people to buy a house to live in, it's always been the fact that those rents keep going up every single stinking year, and if I don't get out of this rat race and buy, I'm stuck. And so what are you going to do? What's going to happen? Well, Josh, they can't afford the house. Corey, they're going to have to live in a 3-1 instead of a 4-2. I'm sorry. They're going to have to take, because this is the thing, inflation always goes up faster than wage growth. You seeing. I just got done, actually, I'm just reading it right now. I, I can, was a contributor to an article for um, oh, one of the major networks. I forget what uh, which one this was, uh, one of the major um, uh, news stories, and um, they're talking about the UAW strike. I don't know if you paid attention to what's going on with the UAW strike.
0: Yeah, should be going on. They started the strike today, I think, in three plants, and which is going to impact, obviously, you know car transactions, Car prices, which is also going to then impact inflation.
1: Interesting thing. So you know what the offer was from the big three? 16, 18, and 20% raises across the board for the big three auto manufacturers. The union rejected. The reunion is asking for more than a 40% wage increase and a reduction from a 40-hour work week to like a 32-hour work week and getting paid for a 40-hour work week. So guys, to to kind of spell this out, we've kind of set the edges of where the playing field is. The minimum is a 16% raise. So the answer is going to be somewhere between 16% and 40 something percent, with a 40-hour work week in the balance. Right? What does that mean for inflation? What does that mean for wages? Right? Wages go up, amazing phenomenon. Every time wages go up, guess what happens to home prices? Also go up. They also go right. So there's this stuff and here's the crazy thing. Let's say the economy, because of the pressures that are coming with the student loan coming due here in a couple of a couple of weeks, got actually, student loans are gonna be due for the first time in three years. Average student loan is around five hundred and three dollars a month. Forty three and a half million Americans have student loans. That's about twenty one point eight billion dollars a month coming out of the economy. Think that might have some headwinds to our economy? If it does and the economy starts to tank, what's the Fed gotta do? The Fed loosens interest rates. The Fed loosens interest rates. Guess what happens to the real estate market? And so all those people that are sitting in their homes that won't leave because they're just watching interest rates go up and up and up, now, now they're like, well, you know, we're down to six point six. Maybe I should sell now and, and 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 go. Right? And so it frees up some inventory and also takes and starts to make these homes a little bit more affordable again as interest rates start to sneak their way back down. So I feel like we're in a position that real estate is pretty well hedged, no matter which way it goes, that it's still going to be of the, of the allocations of capital that are out there, it's going to be okay. I think that only at the very tail end of an inflationary cycle, the very, very bitter end when interest rates get incredibly high, you know, the, the, the high double digits is where you start to see real estate suffer and underperform inflation but typically in the place that we're at real estate tends to do pretty well. So,
0: yeah, it's it's one of those things that, you know, you hear so many people trying to compare what is going on today to, to what happened in 2008. Okay. Oh and it's just it's just anyone that says that, I just don't you, you can't take them seriously because the dynamics are so different that are at play in this market compared to what was in 2008.
1: Have you ever seen the comedian Bill Ingle? Uh, I don't think so. All right, it's the uh, blue-collar comedy with uh, the, the the very uh, 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 what's the guy's name? Jeff Boxworthy is the main yeah. guy. Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah. So one of his things is when somebody says something particularly stupid, he says, "Here's your sign." Oh, well,
0: okay. Yeah, I know. That's yeah. It,
1: yeah. When somebody says, "Oh, it's like 2008," here's your sign. Why, uh, Corey, I, I wish I wish there's a place I could do a screen share with you. I would pull up one of the charts in my inflation class that I teach. In that chart, I have the housing price index nationwide for the U.S. from 1900 to 2016. And guys, it's this slow, steady curve up, little hiccup here, and then this right angle turn down and then back up again. That's the housing crisis. So what I'm saying to you is we have about 108 years of history of real estate behind that where there is no downturn. No meaningful down. The biggest downturn prior to that was in 1991. Real estate prices fell 0.3%. All right, so that was the big... Guys, even, even in the Great Depression, home prices didn't drop. All right, it, it was. it's amazing how steady real estate has been through all of this. So what that means to me, Corey, as a real estate investor, as a guy that runs a fund and is trying to take and predict where it's going, i got to take a look at that chart and say, well, wait a second. I got 108 years of history with no problem, and then I had this one event that seems to have caused real estate to behave in a way that it never has, which means that event is a black swan outlier event. In other words, if I can figure out what caused that event, if those things don't exist today, then the likelihood of this event repeating itself. Is highly unlikely because they have 108 years of all the different economic pressures that hit real estate over that 108 year period of time that never caused it to behave this way. So we have.
0: I would add one caveat to that. Now, that's real estate on the big scale, the big scheme, the big picture. Obviously, in local areas, this is for investors where you can get in trouble if you think that locally that. It's only going to go up because obviously that's not the case in no, 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 an individual that, market. So I just want to put that out for the listeners.
1: It's not that it's only going to go up. I'm not the real estate guy that's going to tell you that it's only going. <laughs> I'm the real estate guy right now that would tell you honestly, unless you're buying single family or maybe you know those smaller double, duplex, triplex, fourplex, I'm not buying right now. And the only reason why I say single family is because there is such a inventory shortfall of single family. I don't know how you get it wrong on the single-family side. Yeah, There's just such a shortfall. And duplex, triplex, fourplex, as a builder general contractor, which I also am, it's really not financially possible to build those. The reason why you don't see a lot of duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes being built is because unless you scale that up to like 20, 30, 40, even, even in that size, it doesn't make economic sense to build them for the most part, right? The, the, all the aggravation you have to go through with the city, it's like building a 20-unit building but you're only getting four units out of it, right? And so you don't see a lot of new small multifamily. You see bigger multifamily, at least in the markets that I'm around. You see bigger, but I don't see a lot of the smaller stuff coming out. Of it, right? So once again, it's gonna be something that's, that's scarce. And because it's scarce, that scarcity is gonna take and preserve my outlook for value improvement. But with the outlook coming for the student loan repayment and the $28, $1.8 billion a month coming out of the economy, It makes me sit here and say, hey, wait a second. That's gonna really crush the Airbnb market because there'll be less travel, less travel, higher vacancy. Those Airbnb people could do a couple of different things. They could really mess with my my mojo. They could take those Airbnb properties and turn them back into long-term rentals. That softens my rental market. That's a potential problem for me. Or they could take and bring those Airbnb properties to the market and try to sell them. I don't think they sell into this market because I think that they've, they've recognized good appreciation and I think that as a long-term, the long-term rental market is still strong mm-hmm. so, and still underserved so I think we're still okay there it would take a pretty catastrophic event for that to happen and soften the market in a meaningful way but it's a possibility so I'm sitting here saying if I'm looking at it I'm not allocating any capital to like the December at the earliest, November December at the earliest, because I want to see kind of how this shakes out. If I start seeing really bad earnings numbers numbers coming back from my retail people, if Marriott starts taking and downgrading uh, what they're what they're expecting, at least for their American uh, sites, if I'm starting to see you know the airlines start to scuffle, then I'm going to sit here and say you know what, forget December, I'm waiting till February March. Let's see how this shakes out, because when you're buying investment property. You're always buying based upon the income the property generates, right? We're always looking at that net operating income and that's what we're buying based on. So if, that, if those vacancies goes up, if those net operating incomes come down, that means that a few months from now I can potentially, potentially pick up some of these properties at a better price point than I can get them today. And so I want to be on the other side of that rainbow. It couldn't, Corey, this could be a big nothing burger. But as a history guy, right, I'm always looking at, Where's the precedent? Where's the similar event that I can point to? So I can sit here and say, hey, what happened then? The problem is I don't have any corollary event that I can go to the student loan thing, which overnight in October now everybody's got to start paying and they haven't been paying for three years. I can't find a historical event where 43 and a half million Americans overnight get a $503 a month bill that's got to come direct, directly out of discretionary spending. That I don't see going back into the economy. So, like, they're going to take and pay these loans back. Well, does this mean that the lenders haven't been making student loans this whole time? No, they've been still making it, hand out student loans like, you know, like candy. Like candy, exactly. So, it, it's not going to take and an, I don't see it stimulating the economy in any way. All I see it is, is a drag on the existing economy. And because I don't have a historical corollary, as an investor, I say, wait a second, the, the environment is now riskier. I don't see that risk being priced in, I don't see the prices coming down to reflect this additional risk, and because of that, that means that I'm seeing these prices as potentially overpriced because the same environment that I was looking at a year ago doesn't exist. The same environment plus an added risk exists, and because of that added risk that I'm not being compensated for, I need to set step back and say, wait a second, if I'm not going to get paid for it, that means I'm going to be an observer. I'm going to just watch and see how this shakes out, and then depending on how it shakes out, come back in.
0: Yeah, I think the one thing that might might be interesting as we move into the student debt restarting is if folks over the last three years that had student debt that then, you know, haven't been paying on those loans, but they've bought a new house during that time frame and now they have that higher interest rate, they have that bigger home payment, are they gonna start to struggle to cover that cost I don't think so. Forward.
1: I don't think so, Corey. It's a great question. I love the fact that your mind is right there, because the, the, this is the thing that pr- protects the single-family home market, is that when they do the underwriting for that mortgage, they count the student loan payment as if you were making it anyway. So when they, but at fill- the same
0: time, the the lenders have also increased what they they like for DTI. So that used to be like in the thirty percent. Now it's up in the forty, at least forty.
1: No 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 no. The the DTI ratios for FHA, VA, all these guys have remained unchanged. If you're talking about stuff that they keep on the portfolio, yeah, but what ma- what makes portfo- what makes a portfolio loans for lenders is a very small subset of the market. And even so as a lender, when you're doing your underwriting you're always going to count all expenses, even if those expenses are on hiatus, forbearance, whatever. You're always going to take and write that in. So it's a really good point you're bringing up, and that's the reason why I actually think my single-family home, my, my, I don't see a problem in the, in the people that own homes to live in side of the market. I think that's okay. I think the place that we're going to see issue is maybe on the rental side, because when I do my vetting for my tenants, I look at what pay stubs, bank statements. And 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 that's it, right? Well, the last three years, this student loan hasn't been coming out, so those bank statements are going to look artificially good to me as I'm underwriting these guys because I'm not doing what the lender does and taking into account those student loan payments. So, could I have a situation now where people that are renting from me now do exactly what you're saying? Now they're struggling because that rent they could pay. But now that they have this couple that has five hundred and three bucks a month each that they owe in student debt, well now they got a thousand bucks less in overall discretionary spending. Now maybe they've overextended themselves with this rental that they're in. Yeah, so
0: that you know, that's more than likely going to impact your you know, your middle class to your upper middle class folks that maybe have been spending a lot more of their paycheck than, than they should be.
1: I, I think that it's 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 everybody. I mean look, let's be honest. The inflationary cycle that we're in hurts one group of people more than any other. But and it's the middle, middle class. class. It's the middle class because here's the thing. Who are the who is the people that get killed? Does everybody get hurt with wages? Yeah, with 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 the value of money going up. It, it, it hurts everybody. So everybody's wages now buy less. So that's the lower class, middle class, upper class. Everybody feels that pain across the board. But what's the other piece of it? If you're saving your money, so who saves their money? Does the lower class save their money? They do not. It's the reason why they're in the lower class, they don't, they don't save their money. Does the middle class have bank accounts and save their money? Yes, they do. Does the upper class? No, surprising surprisingly, the upper class has very little in the way of savings. Almost all of their money is investments. And because of that differential, that's the reason why the folks that are sitting there with their money in the bank, thinking that they're obeying the law, the rules and put your money in the bank, save your money, those are the ones that are getting crushed. There's the reason why the name of the book that I wrote, the first book was called The Roadmap the American Dream. The Roadmap the American Dream, guys, is not living within your means and saving your money. It's living below your means and allocating as much of that that what's left over to investment. The investor class has outperformed every income class, every, I'm sorry, every wage, wage earning group across the board. It's been that way for decades. And so, you know, you can either take a look at what's gone on and adjust yourself and try to be successful based upon what all the evidence shows, or you can sit there and listen to this model that winds up with you, 80 years old, sitting in front of Walmart handing out stickers as people walking in as a greeter. Your choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, is there anything worse than just a savings account, like uh, just...
1: Look, I, I, Corey, I, I say to people all the time, a savings account is a place that you put money that you lose money on. It is a place they will never ever 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 pay you enough interest to compensate for how quickly the value of the money is going down. So when I when I'm explaining to people, I say, imagine a metal milking pail. You know the pail they use to milk cows in? Right? I want you to imagine somebody's got a little eye drop at the top going drip drip. That's the bank giving you interest. Then I want you to imagine if took a nail and that's the value of the money leasing leaving via inflation. All right, well, you're say, well, yeah, you know, they're up to 5% interest rate on a CD, right? Way to go. The value of the money is going down between 7 and 8%, guys, come on. You know, got to get on the same page here. You're bleeding to death, guys. You have an arterial bleed going on. And if you don't do something, in 2021, the average devaluation of money, the CPI, which tends to understand inflation, says money went down in value 7% which means if you weren't making 7% on your money, you were not even standing still. You were falling backwards. So guys, was the bank paying you 7% interest in 2021? No, whatever the difference is between what they were giving you, which I know what it was. It was like 0.0000, go get a microscope to see it. 1% they were giving you, right? Whatever the difference between that and that inflation number is the loss you were taking. I, the, the way to think of it is this, it's like putting your money under the mattress. You stick a dollar under the mattress, you're pulling your hand in to pull the money out and 75 cents comes out. You look in the mattress like what happened to the other quarter? Yeah. Guy, your dollar by 75 cents of what it did in 2020 today.
0: Yeah I, I recently learned, so uh, my mom passed uh, a couple of years ago and Sorry. she was the one that kind of ran the finances for the most part in the house. And my dad found like money stuffed in coffee cans throughout the house and it's just like I'm like, Dad, you gotta go do something with that money. You can't just you can't just leave it in the house. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think the tough thing Corey becomes, and I mean I get this very much for the I mean yeah. I, I know I'm hard on folks sitting here saying, You gotta invest, you gotta invest. Because like there's that moment where you look at the coffee cans and everybody has this. You're looking at the money you got. <laughs> I gotta invest this. In what? Yeah. You know, and, and you know what I mean? And there's like that, that fear of like, well, you know, real estate, ah, but real estate's been doing so good. It's got to come down. Ah, I can't go there. Look, folks, did you miss the golden age of real estate? Yeah, you did. You did. We're not going to see what happened in 2020 to, to 2022. We're not going to see that again, like probably ever in our lifetimes. Does that mean that you shouldn't buy? Well, well no, it, it just means that... You're, you you missed the uh, winning the, the winning lottery numbers, right? Um, it's like saying, should you buy Bitcoin now that it's you know twenty some odd thousand? The question is whether or not it's a good idea. It's not like the idea of trying to time the market. You're out of your mind, like all right? So, like, here's the cool like just one more cool thing. Well, I don't mean to be on real estate so much, but I do allocate most of my my, my resources to real estate to invest because I think that the because I'm a risk averse kind of person. I think the ways that I can mitigate risk are 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 so many in real estate that it it trumps other investment types. Even though I have the huge liquidity risk, (laughs) annex too many whatever. But imagine this: imagine I go crazy and I buy a property right now and I borrow money. And for investment property right now, you probably paying eight and a half percent, right, on your money. Okay. Fast forward a year later, rates have gone to eleven percent. Am I happy with my eight and a half percent rate? I'm sitting here, yeah, I locked it in, baby, right? If rates fall to six, guess what I'm doing? I'm refining and I'm getting the new rate. Guys, you lock in, you downside, and you can participate in the upside if it ever manifests itself again. Where else can you do that, right? And here's the crazy thing, folks. We, while the interest rate is high, understand that's reflective of the value of the money going down. So here's the thing. I agree to pay the bank a certain number of dollars today on this investment property that I'm buying. Does that amount of money that I agree to pay the bank change? No, for the next 30 years it stays the same, right? What happens to my rents in that period of time? They're going up. So folks, understand this. And and you don't really see this until you do a differential cash flow, and that's what I was trained in in, in how I analyze real estate. When you buy real estate, you're not buying today. You're buying today and the future. You're buying two rights when you buy real estate. You're buying the right for investment properties. You're buying the right, you're exchanging money today for a series of future cash flows, which are your rents into the future. You have the right to all those rents and the right to a future sale price that we hope and history shows us should be an appreciated sale price right those are your two rights so in order to understand whether or not this is a good thing you can't just look at the income today compare it to the purchase price and say oh the cap rate is blah 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 you can't do that because I'm not just getting today's income I'm getting the future as well so until you spread that out over time and figure out where your rents should be and what the property should be worth you can't really understand the full value of what you're doing and compare it to should I be buy general electric stock or should I open that small business or anything else. And so understand that if I agree to pay the bank twelve hundred dollars a year for this mortgage and my income is only fifteen hundred dollars a year, well next year my income, because I'm gonna take my rents up is $1550. But my mortgage payment stays the same. And guess what else stayed the same? My purchase price. So here's the thing your rate of return every year you hold that property is actually going up because it's being compared back. The higher rents are being compared back to the initial purchase price. In order to figure out what you're actually doing, you have to figure out not only those futures rents, but also what you're going to sell it for and get yourself a a complete rate of return. So I do an exercise in the class. I was just teaching my, my inflation class yesterday. Buying a and the problem with the inflation class is the numbers keep changing on me, right? So we're buying a five cap, right? So a five cap, we could probably still find a five cap, a property that's making a 5% rate of return. The net operating income is giving me a 5% rate of return on my purchase price. So I think the property was a $1.5 million property with 75000 in income. So not setting the world on fire at all, right? And I say, all right, let's project the rent growth like it was in the last inflationary cycle, kind of continuing on what we've seen, which is this this accelerated rent growth that we've seen. And obviously, how we book that matters. I'm not going to, like, even though the number was nine back then, I don't use nine, Corey. I don't have the guts to use nine. I'm using like five and maybe seven. I'm not using three, but I'm figuring it's going to do better than it normally does just because the value of money is still going down faster than normal, right? So, anyway, I book all this. I say, all right, guys, should we borrow 7% money? Money's going to cost us 7%, and the property's only generating a 5% rate of return. What do you think it does? Well, on a cap rate, our cap rate is going to look terrible because every dollar that I borrow, I'm losing two cents on in interest. Over a, over a seven year hold in the property, it goes from a 14% annualized rate of return if we buy it cash to a 21.9% rate of return if we buy it with financing, even with that negative cash flow. Because, once again, that component of the future. And there is not a shopping center built, there is not any major building built or a performer, a projection of what the future is going to look like is not done, that's taken to the bank. And that's what the bank uses to lend them millions of dollars to make that build with is that projection of the future is. So when you think about real estate, I know this is maybe if you, you deal with new investors, this to me is just kind of casting vision of what the concept <laughs> looks like. Um, but I want you to understand that future component is an important part of understanding real estate and what real estate does over time because when you buy real estate, it's not something you buy today and sell tomorrow. You don't day trade real estate. There, there's, there's there's a there's a time period you're going to be locked into this thing, and getting your head around that is going to help you to see whether or not it's time to, to part ways with an asset, or maybe keep it. And um, these sort of so, how are some of the problems.
0: You're kind of looking at it from a more of a speculative kind of approach as opposed to current performance when you're looking at your five cap versus seven percent interest rate.
1: Well, the problem with a five cap is let's let's talk odds. What are the odds of me buying a property, holding it for seven years, and having the rents never go up?
0: Low.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's we're talking. I mean, is it a non-zero risk? Maybe there's a non-zero chance. Maybe maybe for some odd reason, you know, Boeing takes and closes their plant in this small market. That like, and that's when you said that before, Corey. I wanted to commend you for that because you're absolutely right, brother. You know, you have to know your small market. If if you have a major uh, employer there or anything like that, yeah, you got to take that into account. But we're talking macro level concept-wise. To be a good investor, first you have to understand the concepts that drive investment, and then you take and you you subjugate those concepts to the specific market that you're in, right? And so I'm in a market that's a particularly big market in Southeast Florida. So one employer coming in or going out really isn't going to make a whole hill of beans worth a difference in my market. And so for me, that kind of washes out. Um, if I'm in a really small uh, small area, like my, my family's from Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas, they have a lot of big airplane manufacturing that goes on in Wichita, Kansas. Well, if somebody's coming in, my real estate's going to be, one of these big manufacturers is coming in, my real estate's going to be more valuable. If one of them's leaving, as to, to quote the great and very eloquent Mr. Scooby-Doo, we got a problem, right? Yeah. And so um, it's not really speculative so much because speculative, it kind of is and it kind of isn't, Corey, in a sense that I'm actually going where the, st- the greatest statistical likelihood is going to lead lead me to. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, what can I most likely expect? If you buy a home to live in, Corey, what are the odds that that home doesn't appreciate over a 10-year period of time? That
0: um, yeah, it doesn't appreciate small.
1: Right, it's gotta go up, right? It's got, I mean, if if there's anything we know about real estate, what you could pay for a home 10 years ago, you're gonna pay a lot more today, right? For the exact same house, right? And so, what I'm saying is a good, and on the commercial side of real estate, we do this all the time. This is how, where Performa comes from, because I know if I'm selling you a property, Corey, you're buying this property into the future, right? And so, you know, it's almost like, you know, when you marry somebody, trying to figure out, well, gee, What are they gonna look like twenty years from now? Why? Because you're getting them now. Yeah, you're gonna enjoy them now. But twenty years from now, you're gonna still be with them. I want, I want to know what I'm getting into here. You with me? And that's really what um, a good commercial analysis. And this is actually the part that I brought to the residential side that made me such a successful agent with my residential investors. Because I'm a believer that I don't want to get you into a deal, Corey. I want to get you into a deal that makes money for you. Because if you make money. You're going to want to do that whole doing a deal with Josh thing over and over and over again. I want your business over and over and over again. So I'm typically going to sit down with you and spend a ton of time explaining all of this stuff to you, showing you how it works, and then taking this disciplined approach and applying it to each piece of real estate and figuring out which one is the best allocation of capital today, which is the best place to put my your money, or whether it's a good time to sit back and say, hey, look, based upon what you're looking for, we need to take and tap the brakes.
0: Yeah, and that's, I think that kind of boils down to one of the most important things that you can do when you start to look to invest in in investment properties, which is to properly evaluate not only the property itself, but the market, so that you can understand what's gonna happen with that property going into the future. You know, future. they always say future performance isn't necessarily guaranteed based off past performance, which is true. true. We've seen that in markets that we invest in, like. Houston, you know, you saw significant increase in rent growth, but then you get to a ceiling, right, where rent growth can't really go much faster than what it had done in the past. So it flatlines for a while.
1: Yeah, no, it'll, yeah. it'll flatline for a couple of years, because I've seen these phenomenon, too, that you're talking about. Flatlines for a couple of years, and then it trends back up again. It kind of has to wait for wages to sort of catch up.
0: Yep. And,
1: and... Yeah. and and beat it where it's at. It's a true thing, right? But what we're trying to do always is knock the. We're trying to knock the peaks and valleys off this this chart. And yep, get ourselves... over time,
0: you get more of the... All right. So um, what we like to do, kind of at the tail end of our, our episodes, we like to ask our guests, where do you see yourself in one year, and where do you see yourself in five years?
1: Um, I'm tempted to say sitting right here because I seem <laughs> I seem to be either here teaching a Zoom class. Or, or on a stage. Um, my uh, right now, I do a lot of uh, real estate education, and um, I, I'm trying to break out just just out of, of simply real estate education into some broader fields because the uh, the idea of excellence at, at what you do I think is ubiquitous uh, to any industry, and I think we need more people pursuing excellence in what they do. I think the idea of of living a life where you just do your job to earn a paycheck, uh, man, it just it leaves people so hollow, empty, lost, and then spending whatever downtime they have trying to make up for the fact that they're down, hollow and lost from that work that they do every single day. That work leaves them leaves them empty. And so I try to give people a, a better way to look at that and, and pursue, oh well, man, look, the founders gave us three rights, right, Corey? Life, liberty, yeah. and the pursuit of happiness. That pursuit of happiness as they understood it, classically trained gentlemen, those founders, they were. They understood the pursuit of happiness as the pursuit of the joy one gets from a life well lived. To me, there's no way to have that joy of a life well lived unless you run a business and do a job that's meaningful and worthwhile to you. You're just going to miss that. Not going to take advantage of what this country gives you in that op- in that opportunity there. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I see myself maybe in the next year and five years for that matter. Buying more real estate most likely, um, and just uh, just doing that,
0: helping people pursue their happiness.
1: Yeah, man, just taking figuring out a new way to look at this business, this work thing, man, and make it a joy to go to. Uh, I think I might have told you a story on, on the podcast that we did. Uh, I was in the back seat of a car. I was in the front seat of a car, and uh, with my father. My father owned this big industrial operation and worked very closely with the auto manufacturers uh, Ford Chrysler and GM in fact originally they were his competitors and they couldn't compete with my father so they closed the parts of their businesses they did what my father did and just gave all their business to him to do and so in the backseat of the car is a guy that worked in the GM assembly line for like 30 years all this guy did was do the exact same thing all day every day eight hours a day Could you imagine a more mind-numbing job? Anyway, we're we're, we're driving the guy, and he starts to pound on the back of the front seat that I'm sitting in. He says, Josh, Josh, look over there. Look next to you. I see see this, this old car. He says, you see that car? I put the back door on that car. Look at the way we put the back doors on. You see the spacing around? Let me tell you how we sealed the gasket to make sure it wouldn't leak. Guys, this guy didn't just put on back doors. He put a piece of his soul on every back door he did. Because you know what? the way he did his back doors on those cars was a reflection of himself he didn't do it for a paycheck he did it because he was the one doing it and he pursued it with excellence and man if, if somebody can get that kind of joy and respect themselves out of putting back doors on a car man it seems like people are missing out on a lot of good stuff from the work that they do Corey if they're yeah. not getting more meaning out of it
0: I agree alright well um Thank you for coming on our show today. Uh, a lot of insight that you've been able to provide to the listeners. Uh, where can someone get a hold of you, get in touch with you, kind of learn more about what you're doing?
1: Um, closeforlife.com is where all my education stuff is. Uh, Instagram, you can get me Josh D. Cadillac. Joshua Cadillac, just about every place else. Josh or with Cadillac, just about every place else. Um, got books on Amazon. Roadmap, The American Dream has been on there for uh, quite a while now. And uh, the new one from McGraw-Hill is Close for Life. For anybody that's uh, that's trying to figure out this this real estate thing, um, the, both of those books are helpful. One's on investing, and one's on doing the business of real estate. Um, yeah, those are pretty much the uh, the places to get me. Uh, running a actually we're running a competition right now. Uh, if you text uh, the number six six eight six six and the word close, you have a chance to win a free copy of a free signed copy of Close for Life. Uh, you got to take him, follow us on Instagram, and, and tag three people. But if you do those three things, you win yourself a free signed copy of the book.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us, Josh. Uh, Like I said, a lot of value, a lot of important topics that are impacting real estate today. So
1: thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Until next time.